Welcome to episode 207 of Control the Controllables. And another first for Control the Controllables as we have our first ever Australian Open singles champion. Back in 2002, Thomas Johansson beat Marat Safin in four sets to go against the grain. It was an Australian Open where Pete Sampras was going for his 14th Grand Slam. And Thomas Johansson came out of the shadows to win the event. And talking about coming out of the shadows, Thomas Johansson comes from Sweden, which has been an incredible tennis nation over the years. And he came out of the era after your Bjorn Borgs, Mats Verlander, Stefan Edberg. And there were so many amazing Swedish players that came through. And now he's turned his hand to coaching on the ATP and WTA tours as this last year he's been working with Serana Castilla and also helped her to the quarterfinals of this, this year's US Open. We live by controlling the controllables here at Control the Controllables. And one of my controllables when I do podcast episodes is to make sure my microphone is fully switched on and turning the right way. And I hold my hands up. I've messed up big time on this one. So your volume when I am speaking won't quite be of the quality or the levels that it's supposed to be at. So please accept my apology on that. But Thomas sounds great and you'll still absolutely love the episode. So I'm going to pass you over to Thomas Johansson. So Thomas Johansson, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm doing fine. I just came back from uh, from Stockholm. Uh, we were there for, uh, me and my wife, we were there for um, five or six days. So the kids, they were alone here. They are quite big now, so it was fine. But uh, it was a nice trip. Um, we don't go back to Stockholm that much. So, um, But it was cold and it was actually snowing, believe it or not, one day. So we had a great time. I believe it very well. I I just got back from the UK and we both, I think, Thomas chosen to live in warmer climates and, <laughs> uh, over the years and South Spain, South of Spain. But I was in the UK, unfortunately, visiting uh, my mum, who's not so well. But it, I don't think it stopped raining for two and a half days. Yep. Um, and I had my daughter with me and she said, why is it dark? It was three thirty. She couldn't. <laughs> she couldn't. The concept of darkness at three thirty in the afternoon. But you were saying just off air. I think it's definitely well worth a mention before we delve into into your life, Thomas, and, and all of the great things you've achieved and and learnt over the years. But for a great cause. You're in Stockholm, and you know, using your name, Jonas Bjorkman, as well, and, and charity. So tell us a little bit more about that, because what I'd love to do as well is put the links into that at the end of the podcast. And if anyone then wants to jump in and, you know, be part of that or, you know, be able to, um, you know, be show their kindness towards it. I think they're great, great things yeah. to get involved in. Yeah, uh, I went to uh, the first charity event I went to was um, actually in my hometown. So uh, in my hometown, um, we have a great ice hockey team and uh, a very good friend of mine, he played in the NHL and he also played in the national team of Sweden. He started a uh, foundation in 2016. Uh, and uh, this year, in the beginning of this year, he called me and he asked if I wanted to become an ambassador. And the charity event is uh, we're, we're trying to help kids 
that have difficulties. Um, it could be that they are sick. It could be that they need uh, uh, more time in school, for example. Uh, so, um, in general, kids that have that, that struggles in the society. Um, so it's been growing quite quick. We are in uh, three or four different cities in in Sweden. And then the second one I went to is actually uh, one of my closest friends, Jonas Björkman. He started a uh, foundation uh, 10 years ago with one of our most famous musicians in Sweden. Uh, so um, his name is Mons Selmelöv, and he actually won Eurovision Song Contest. I don't know when, don't ask me when, but um, a great guy. And they are helping uh, kids in Kenya. So they have done such a great job. So I think they have built now two or three schools. They have a small uh, hospital. Uh, they also have a, a dentist clinic as well. So it's growing really fast. I have not been there yet, but I would love to go. Yeah. Uh, Jonas and Mons, they go there uh, every year to, to see what they're doing. So uh, it's... it's uh, it was for a very good cause, like you said. And then, of course, uh, my wife and I, we enjoyed Stockholm a little bit as well. Right. Well, uh, do you know what? I think we talk a lot on the on the podcast and also at Solo Tennis Academy that tennis is a vehicle, you know? And I think yes. it's what's been so great about this podcast is to show all the different stages, stages, developments, and the fact that you guys have had your amazing playing tennis careers, you're then doing it as, as coaches <laughs> and you're now able to use your names and, and contacts yeah. for, for such good. It, it, it just really nicely kind of finishes that circle and, and showcases how, how it yeah. truly is a vehicle. Yeah, and also what, what was good with, with uh, or what is good with Jonas' um, charity event is that in the morning we play tennis. Yeah. So Jonas, of course, he knows everyone. So uh, the lineup uh, sometimes can be quite impressive. Uh, we have a, a few slams in between each other and uh, I don't know how many titles Davis Cup wins, you know. Uh, and then in the evening, there is a dinner. And then Mons, Jonas' partner, of course, calls his friends. <laughs> so I would say it's uh, it, it's it's an amazing day that we have uh, with yeah. each other. And uh, as you know, tennis is is a beautiful sport because it's such um, it's such a social sport. And and in in especially in Sweden, since we've had a very strong history of tennis, everybody knows how to play tennis, uh, and everybody wants to play tennis. And of course, if they step on the court with let's say Stefan Edberg or maybe Mats Wilander, Jonas Björkman, or it's, it's, it's uh, you know, they, it's a lot of fun. So you have to, before I, I jump into your life, come on, give us the order of play from last week. Who was, who was on the tennis court <laughs> last week? <laughs> well, uh, normally we have, uh, I mean, both, we have Magnus Norman, we have Michael Tilstrom, Niklas Kulti, but this week, as you might know, uh, there is a challenger in yep. uh, the good to great tennis academy so yes, unfortunately yeah. they they couldn't come but uh i was there uh marin silic was there as well right, right. because jonas uh, used to coach marin for many yeah. for uh, i think a few years uh anders yarid yeah. was there and then uh, my coach uh andreas vinciguera uh, yes. a former i would say top 30 for, maybe 40 player uh, Thomas Högstedt, a very famous yeah. um, tennis coach from Sweden, he was also there. So 
in the previous years we've actually had a bit stronger to be honest but as i said magnus norman and niklas kulti and michael tilsom they were busy with their challengers so uh, but we had a great time great time but but that leads me in thomas because you said something there and the starting point i always ask the guests and i want to i want to know how you got into tennis and it, it might be obvious because at that time certain certainly tennis was a was a real big deal in sweden and you can just list to names after name after name you know well the first time you played main draw of the australian Open, there were 17 other swedes there you know yeah. <laughs> and, and, and now we don't have it so tell me first why why not what what's happened at what point did that conveyor belt stop or not stop but certainly slow down and, and and why was that when tennis has been historically such a, a big amazing sport in Sweden? Yeah, it's uh, it's very tough to say. You know, I, I first of all I got into tennis because my dad and my grandfather played a little bit of tennis, yeah, but not yeah. on a high level. Okay. But I started. I I'm honest. I started to play tennis when I was wearing diapers. Uh, so I started very early, um, and then I played with my dad and with my grandfather, and then they put me in, in a tennis school. And then I think when I was five, um, the head coach of the tennis club where I'm from saw when I was playing. And then he went up to my dad and said, I really want your son to start uh, playing in, in our club. So that's how it all started. And then I was successful as a junior. Um, I was, you know, I won the European Championships, I finals of Orange Bowl. And so I, w- I would say I was top, yeah, you know, top pen, three, top five. There, yeah. yeah. Many thought that it was going to go a lot quicker for me to, you know, with the transition from juniors to pros, but it actually took a bit of time. Yeah. So I think I was 21 when I uh, broke into the top 100. And then from there on, I, you know, my ranking, uh, I would say, improved quite solid, you know, from, from let's say, 100 and, and downwards. Uh, but to answer your second question is, I don't know why, because we, we ha- we've had such a strong history of tennis. Started with Björn Borg, and then we had Mats Wilander, we had Stefan Edberg, and then you know, we had Jonas Björkman, uh, we had Thomas Enquist, Magnus Norman, uh, myself. Uh, and then I would say the last one was maybe Robin Söderling that had, uh, you know, a, a strong results. We, we had the Emer brothers as well, but they they didn't reach, um, you know, as high as, as we did. But one thing that for me sticks out is that, you know, building a team together with a coach, meaning to have two or three players with one coach, was a very successful formula in the Swedish tennis, in the Swedish history of tennis. Because it started with Edberg, uh, Jonas Svensson, maybe you remember him, uh, Johan Karlsson also, he was in this team, Joachim Nyström, I think even Mats Wilander was, was in this team as well. And then we had another team with, uh, I think it was Magnus Larsson, Thomas Enquist, Niklas Kulti, Michael Tilström. And then the, the third team was uh, Magnus Norman, myself, uh, and then a guy called Patrick Fredriksson, who was two years older than, than myself. But this was the most successful formula in the history of Swedish tennis. 
Mm-hmm. And then the last team uh, that we had was Robin Söderling, Joachim Johansson, and then uh, one more guy. I don't remember who it was. So, but after that, we we stopped with that. All these teams have been financed by a company, okay, or partly from the federation. But now Swedish Federation, they don't have that much money anymore, so they can they they struggle to do that. Um, so, to answer your question, the only chance I would say we have apart from the good academies that we have with the good to great academy and, and some other um, academies that we have in Sweden, this, I think, would be the solution moving forward. You know, grab two, three guys, put a very high-level coach and put two, three girls with a very high either female or male coach. This, I think, is the solution moving forward because talent is there. If you would tell me, but yeah, you were so uh, talented, but now we don't have any talent, I would say I would strongly disagree because I think that talent is there. We just have to pick them up. And we also have to have a good coach because also most of the coaches have moved out from Sweden as well. And there you see, you see myself, you see many of the other coaches on the, on the professional tour. Um, But to get back into, you know, uh, to develop good players, I really think this is the solution. And, and your is your belief? Because I think there's quite an interesting conversation around this. Is it's one having a good coach, but it's also having a dedicated coach who's willing to do the travel that you take. So if you go back to your time with that team, did you guys have one coach who was with you all the time? Yes, we had uh, Magnus Tiedemann, which. Lately became my personal coach. Okay. Uh, okay. He was traveling with us, I think, around 25 weeks a year, I would say. So, and then we had to start on, at that time, satellite level. Satellite is the future level now. And then we had to, you know, uh, try to improve and move up to challengers and, and to tour events. So, the last event Magnus Tiedemann made with us. I was in the final of Stockholm Open. Magnus Norman was in the semis and Patrick Fredriksson was in the quarters. So that just shows that with a good coach like Magnus and also dedicated players like ourselves, you can succeed. And the next question I would have is, do you think it's better to do it in a team like that or one-on-one at a younger age? I think team is way better. And I will tell you why. I was the first one out of us three that broke through. So I was the first one that, you know, uh, cracked, uh, let's say, the top 100 and maybe made uh, a quarterfinal in the tour event or, you know. The good thing about this is that we were spending, you know, day and night together. And we were practicing with each other every single day. So they saw that if Thomas can make it, yeah. I can make it. Because I beat Thomas yesterday and the day before and the day before that. Yeah. So I think you encourage each other if you're in the team. That's why I think it's very good. Yeah. I guess the issue comes, especially as you're making your way through the ranks, you 
you get into start getting the challenges and then the two players can only play futures and yeah. there's, all, there's always going to be those logistical challenges yes and, but it seems to have been a pretty consistent way of doing it i think specifically with boys as well maybe more so than girls i don't know what you think on that but i i always think that that the boys in general hunted packs a little bit more than than the girls do as well yes i agree with you you know like i said it's been a very successful formula uh they tried in the on the women's side as well it didn't work as well as you know among the guys but um I really think that this is uh, this is the solution of you know trying to get back into you know with the Swedish players again to have a big company saying you know you know what we would put we will finance two teams one for for the guys one for the girls uh, and then we will hire a very high level coach and he will go with you for a year or maybe two and uh, also getting back to what I what you said about this logistic thing if one breaks through and the other one takes a little bit of time we also uh, this team was made for one year and after one year you could actually change around a little bit so um, that's what happened you know we, we were three in the team and then the third guy didn't you know make it as quick as maybe Magnus and myself and then uh, Patrick came in but for me it's 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 so good it's so much fun to travel together and uh, and also fight together and sometimes against each other as well yeah and, and on that on that subject as well Thomas I know again going back on to 2002 which I want to get to because we've got a Grand Slam champion in front of me which is a, a real privilege and the year you won 2002 I believe there was one Swedish journalist that was there throughout that event and we all know that the media shapes us, right? You know, like uh, we talk about Netflix. I'm not convinced that the tennis version of Netflix has done the job that it could have, but I know certainly the Formula One did, you know, and it's got everyone into Formula One, um, everyone into prime drinks, the social media, and you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the, it, it, it is the way that the world ha- has worked and always works. And I guess not capitalizing on yourself and your success which probably they had capitalized on Bjorn Borg and Stefan Edberg and Mats Philander over the years how big of an influence do you think that is to then getting getting more and more people into the sport the fact that maybe the, the media coverage hasn't been as good or wasn't as good as it once was it's interesting that you you talk about this because I just started to watch Tour de France yeah, and uh, on Netflix, and I've never been, I would say, a big fan of cycling. Uh, but now it's almost like you want to grab a bike and you want to go out cycling just to see also how tough it is. So um, in Sweden, Bjorn Borg was the first one that broke through, and then luckily we had Mats Wilander, uh, Stefan Edberg, uh, Anders Jarid, and Michael Pernfors, uh, Henrik Sundström. We had, I mean, we had so many. Uh, Joachim Nyström, I think, was number six in the world at one stage and did not make the Davis Cup team. <laughs> so it just shows how strong we were. But to make more people play tennis, I think you need a uh, Netflix series uh, about tennis. And I agree with you. I really, 
I don't think they they um, they caught the tennis well. If you compare it to the Formula One and if you compare it to Tour de France, yeah. um, I think tennis was so and so. But in Sweden during the pandemic, there were two sports that were open to play: yeah. tennis and paddle. Yeah. So after the pandemic, tennis had a, um, I would say, a, like a big lift in Sweden and also paddle, of course. But uh, now when I was at home uh, in Sweden, I saw more, more and more people are playing tennis. More and more kids are playing tennis. And I'm sure that the talent is there. You just have to catch them. And it's the same for me like when you go to school. If you have a good teacher, you like going to school. You like this specific subject. But if you, and it's the same in tennis, if you have a good coach, you listen and you want to learn and you actually enjoy your time on the court. So um, I think it's, um, I think that's the way to go. So we're gonna we're gonna live in a. I mean, it, it's it could be a real world, I guess, but I'm gonna put you in a fantasy world for a minute. Yeah. Um, you are the performance director for Swedish tennis, and you have to give me a three point plan on how you're gonna how you're gonna change Swedish Swedish tennis over the next ten years. You've given me one already. Yeah. You talked about the the traveling teams, so that's yes. one. What are the, the other two well, things we do? Well, the second one is, is easy as well. We need more tournaments. We, yeah. need more, we need more futures. We need more challengers. I'm not only talking about men. I'm talking about for women as well. So we need more tournaments. At the moment, we have Stockholm Open. We have Swedish Open in Bostad. And then we have now a challenger in Stockholm. This is not enough. If you look at other countries like France, Italy, Spain, you have futures and challengers every single week, pretty much. So this is the second thing I would like to um, to change. Uh, third thing is I would like to have a bit of new blood in the Swedish Tennis Federation. Yeah. Um, I also would like that the... Um, I would say the relationship between the academies and also the federation uh, improves. I think we need people like, of course, you need uh, people with uh, experience in business, but you also need people that has experience in, in the tennis world. And we are lacking there a little bit. So that would be my third, um, third key point to change. I, I can't comment on the third point because I don't know the ins and outs of the Swedish Federation, but any federation or any country in the world that sticks to the first two gives a decent shot, you know? And, yeah, and, yeah. And, 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 I, and I do, and I have to, to, to be fair to the Northern European countries because I think, and I think the UK has this problem as well. I'm in the south of Spain, you're in the south of France. It's 25 degrees on November the 15th. You know, yep. here, to, here today, and if when people ask me about the Spanish system, I always say it's, it's all about competition. And now, but then if we go back a layer, you need to have the courts that are available for a reasonable price to have that, exactly. that, that amount of competition. Yeah, and, and you can, and we're talking about fusion and challenges, but you can in Spain play 
pretty much a tennis Europe for under 14s every week between now and or between July and December. You can play an ITF junior tournament. You've got then the national level events, which are actually higher level than the tennis yep. Europe's and the ITFs. But but all of that's possible because you have these tennis clubs that have 25 outdoor courts and you have, you know, the facilities are so amazing and the weather is so amazing all year round that yeah. you're able to do it. And I, I would imagine facilities in Sweden are quite expensive and it's it's a bit more of a challenge. It doesn't mean it can't be done, but there is some challenges there, I think, for, for the Northern European countries, you know, to to be able to to put that on. But ultimately, we're, we're playing a sport, right? We're playing a game. So we get, yes. we get we get people playing the game, and you got a competitive bunch of people, and the and the prizes are big enough, the cream will rise to the top. You know, yeah. I'm quite a big believer of that. Yes, and I also think that uh, you know in Sweden we have big companies, we have very 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 successful companies that uh, they love tennis, and that's also why. I think that if you can package it in the right way, I am sure, especially now where we are, that companies in Sweden would go in and support teams, like I said, or maybe more events, more junior events as well. I am sure about this because... Now the Swedish tennis is is not good. We don't have any player in the top hundred. So this is a great opportunity for a company to come in and, and say, you know what? We came in in 2024, whatever. Yeah. We changed Swedish tennis. It's back again now. Yeah. And I'm sure we can I'm not maybe we won't reach what we had in the 80s and 90s, but let's say we could have two or three guys top 100, two or three girls top 100, you know? But the way that I look at it, Thomas, is from the from the outside, if we take a Real Madrid, uh, a Manchester United, a Liverpool, a, a Juventus, an AC Milan, if these football clubs have a bad few years, 10, 15, 20 years, which during history would have happened... They're a sleeping giant that someone wants to get their hands on. And and I, when I think of tennis, now I'm 43 years old, so I was definitely brought up in the era where Swedish tennis was at the forefront. But when I think yep. of the giants of the, of, the, of the sport, Sweden is one of them, and it's a sleeping giant. So there's there's something historically that needs to be played on there as well from a, from yep. a marketing standpoint. And, and certainly while... Beyond still around, you know, you've still got you've got the people that are still around. You know, you wait too long, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like yeah, yeah I agree. Or, 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 you, it's hard to get them on a on a marketing campaign. And yeah. well, we've sorted Swedish tennis out, so uh, that's <laughs> that, that's the that's the starting point. And you know, it's uh, but it, it's it's fascinating for me to get your insight into that. But I do want to jump ahead to you, the player, Thomas Johansson, the player, and. We spoke at US Open and I mentioned that I was lucky enough to, you won't remember me, but I certainly remembered you as you came to the grass courts to to play with us us juniors and, you know, this Australian Open champion, you know, walk through the gates and to, to, have, to have that opportunity. But it wasn't just the Australian Open, you know, you were nine singles titles, you know, you were... 
number seven in the world. You were an Olympic silver medalist, you know, in, in the doubles, a, a Wimbledon semi-finalist. You know, you had a, an extraordinary career. And what I find fascinating about your career as well is how it's it built, like you said, like you broke top 20 at, at that age, which back in that time was quite late. Now that's mm. a bit more than norm. You yep. know, but when when you look back at your playing career, there's obvious highlights, but what are the real standouts and and, and how do you reflect on that now you've you've moved through your playing career and you're now you're now into the into the coaching world and, and living your life? How do you reflect back on and I guess the question for me would be, do you view your playing career as a successful playing career? Yes, I I do. I'm very happy and proud of my of the career that I had. Of course, I have regrets, uh, like uh, I think most of the players that have retired. Um, but for me, the highlights, of course, was you know winning the the Grand Slam in in Melbourne. That was something that I dreamt of, and this was something that uh, you know this was my biggest goal of my career. And then I have to pinpoint also the Olympic silver medal together with a very, very, very good friend of mine. Um, and we, Simon Aspelin, yes, exactly. So Simon is uh, one year older than, than I am. We played juniors together for many, many years. So, you know, taking a medal and especially the way we did it, beating Lodra Clement in the semis, I think it was 1917, after mm-hmm. almost almost five, five hours of, of, of play, was something extraordinary. And the third, I would say, would be winning Stockholm Open. Uh, you know, winning at home, especially, I think it was 2004, when I beat Agassi in the final, 7-6 in the third. Um, wow. And Stock- Stockholm, the venue in Stockholm is like you play in someone's living room because it's, you know, it's wooden benches, a wooden floor, and the atmosphere is is something that you, you haven't seen before. And then last, winning Davis Cup was also... Um, I think that um, because when you play tennis, you play uh, alone most of the time. And um, I really enjoyed playing in a team. Um, so that's why I think I did well with Simon, for example. I did well in, in Davis Cup as well. So, um, no, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm very, very happy with my career. Uh, I have regrets, of course. And also... I would have loved to finish my career when I wanted, not because I had to. Uh, because I had I had an injury in, in 08. It actually started, I think, 07, like slowly. Okay. I had uh, problems with my Achilles tendon. Um, and then after end of 2008, I made a surgery. And it was a, pretty much a routine surgery. So I was quite confident coming back after two, three months, to be honest. But it didn't work out. Um, you know, I could play, I could practice hard Monday, uh, could barely walk Tuesday, had an average practice Wednesday, could not walk Thursday, and then was worse Friday. And, you know, this is not the way you can, no. uh, be, you know, be professional and, and keep yourself on a high level. So that's why in, in 2009... I said, you know, I can't do it anymore. And this was something that for me was sad, frustrating, and disappointing. Because you really want to end your career 
when you want to end. And that's why, for example, if you compare Jonas Bjorkman to myself, Jonas could end his career when he wanted. Uh, So he doesn't really miss the tennis. For me, I had to finish because of an injury. And I really miss the tennis. Every time I step on the court, uh, I feel like, you know, I, I wanted to compete for another maybe two, three years. Because I, I felt that I, I could not maybe reach top 10. But I could, if my foot would have been okay, I think I could have been, you know, everything between 20 to 40, which is a, a very good ranking. And you could, uh, you know, you could play every tournament that you wanted to play and you could have a great life. And um, we also got our son in 2006. We got our daughter in 2009. It would have been so much fun for me to show them what my life was all about. Yeah. And, and I'm going to get back to that because Andy Murray said so. I spoke to Andy uh, a few podcasts episodes ago and he said something. About, I'll, I'll tell you this now. He said something that for a while, because I asked him about his kids actually, and he said that it was a big motivating factor for him. Um, a real big motivating factor and he was playing and for a while it, it was almost like the number one purpose he was playing for his kids he felt and then one day the realisation hit and he says it in a really funny way he said they just didn't give a shit <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I realised that like yeah. this whole time I was like trying to do this to, you know, so my kids could see that, see me on the tour and, you know, they're going to be, and, and actually they just didn't, they really didn't care. They couldn't care less and they still no. couldn't care less. They will, they will down the line, uh, of course, but it was, it was quite a funny thing to be said. But uh, the question I have to ask is, um, what is it that you missed? What was the, what was the bit that you really missed from from not being on the tour? Was it the competition? Was it the travel? Was it the the feeling of we all have ego? The feeling of being the tennis player and being having an identity? You know, what was it that was the thing that you really missed? Everything you just mentioned. <laughs> that was what I was missing. I I missed competing. I missed traveling. I missed uh, this feeling of stepping you know on the court and play a very tight match and you know maybe go up you know go out on top um and also you know we had such a great life my wife and i traveling on the tour we went on we went to all these different countries and i could do what i loved i had a great coach um so this feeling of winning a match, you know this. You cannot get it. You cannot get this adrenaline, uh, you know, adrenaline rush that you get from winning a match, and especially a tight one. Or maybe you you play lights out, you know, one one match. Um, you cannot get this feeling. It doesn't matter. I I don't think it matters if you if you become a very successful businessman and and maybe you make an exit. You 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 make a lot of money, but it's not the same. Uh, you know, it's not the same stepping into a court a little bit like a gladiator. Uh, people are watching. They're looking. Uh, I just loved it, and this is something that I I miss every single day. I- Take me back to that feeling. So that 
that day back in January 2002, playing Murat Safin, and uh, Murat Safin was a good friend of mine in juniors. Obviously, Murat Safin was a was a big was a big superstar. He went to set down. You came back, I believe, and won in one in four sets. That feeling as you as you shook hands, and then the moments after. Take me back to that feeling and tell me about that. Uh, I was a bit. I have to say, I was a bit shocked. Um, first of all, Marat was a very, very good friend of mine. We played uh, a few times before and after that match. Um, so we spent a little bit of time together. We practiced a lot with each other um, and we still are in contact. I can be deadly honest. Uh, at 6-1 in the, in the tiebreak, uh, I just freezed, completely freezed. And if you know me, I don't get nervous very easily. Um, I've had a few matches here and there that I got a bit tight, but it, it was most of the time in the beginning of the match. Yeah. But at 6-1, uh, I played, I have to say, I played my best tiebreak in my life up to 6-1. Yeah. But from 6-1 to 6-4, it was probably the worst tiebreak that I've ever played because I, I just completely freezed. I have no memory of what happened. Then at six four, there is a rally, and you can see you can see it uh, on YouTube. And uh, we he made a drop shot, and I run, and I, I you know my my shot is not great. He would never miss that lob um, because I was so close to the net. He had the whole court, and as the lob went over my head, I was like, it's in, it's in, and then. I hear the lines person say out and I, I look at my wife and my coach and they're just screaming. I don't know what happened. I mean, I still can wake up in the middle of the night and, and you know, that, that lob just felt in. But it was, I mean, it was out because they were sitting by the baseline so they could easily see that it was out. But So for me, it was I was shocked. The first time it hit me was after the match, I had to make the press conference. Um, then we had a dinner, just friends and, and family. And then after that, we went to a bar with all the Swedish fans that had, you know, pushed me for the week. And uh, there were like four or 500 people in that oh, bar. Wow. We had no idea where to go. So, but all of a sudden, we just hear people singing. So we just followed, you know, the, the singing. Um, and then we came into the bar and it was, I'm not kidding, like 500 people. So they had reserved an area for us. And I uh, invited every single person in that bar for champagne. So I bought champagne for the whole freaking bar. Mm -hmm. And even today, I meet people coming up to me and say, you know what? I was there. Wow. I was in that bar. So it was an expensive, very expensive bar tab. But for <laughs> me, I, I, I just didn't, get, I, I didn't care because they had, been, they had been pushing me so much from day one uh, all the way to the final. Yeah. That's the best Grand Slam winning story I've heard because not <laughs> that I've spoken to everybody about every Grand Slam, but the stories I've heard in the past, it always seems to just... Uh, it's happened, but it's, you know, but to be able to be in a bar with four or five hundred <laughs> yeah. you know, that's like, that's like Ryder Cup stuff, you know, I can imagine, you know, that's a, 
that's a real thing to cherish. And Swedes, they know how to drink, I promise you. Yeah. So that's why the, the bar tab was quite expensive. But um, And also the day after, uh, when we, we slept in a little bit and then, um, you know, going for breakfast, you see your face on every single newspaper. Okay. And you see your face when you watch TV, uh, CNN, you know, uh, everything is... Um, is showing highlights from the match then you realize that you've done something big and because and because you and please take this in the right way thomas like it, it was it was a surprise you yes know, like, and, and 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 almost i guess the going from an expectancy of probably not i think you were the 16th seed but yes you know which is probably higher than people realize as well but you know going from <clears throat> not being expected to win to then win that almost range of surprise is is so big whereas and when novak wins it's our oh, novak's won again you know yeah. so so for you to have had that experience it's, it's almost a more intense experience yes than novak roger rafa all of the guys have had over the years because it was you know coming from not from Norway because you were a top 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 class player but coming a little bit more from outside the box as well yeah no i i felt after the third round win i felt that i found my game yeah and uh, then it just became better and better and better and better and then of course in the final starting the final i was very tight and nervous uh, so marat broke me first game in the match yeah, and so he won the he we held serve, so he won the first set. Um, but then I would say in the end of first set, I started to feel my game again. So then I started to build confidence, and and fourth set could have gone quicker because I had three one fifteen forty um, to yeah. go double break up, and then I think the match is pretty much finished. But um, Marat is a, such a you know tough opponent, but. I felt that if even if it was a big surprise, I felt that if I can just keep this level yeah. uh, for a few more matches, I felt that I had a chance. I felt that in pretty much every tournament that I played, I felt that if I can reach this level, which I didn't do all the times, but if I could reach this level in a match or for a few matches, I know that I'm dangerous. And yeah. especially on, on the court that we played on in Melbourne. So the belief was there? Yes, yes. Because uh, a couple of things I remember from, from that time. One, I remember, I, I'm trying to think why I, I was linked to that. I mean, if I had somebody who we knew that was there, but I remember it being quite a windy, quite a windy start to, to, to the Aussie Open. There was a couple of years. So you have that journey. And then... And then Pete Sampras was going for his 14th and he lost in the semis to Marat yes. Safin as well. Did you play your semi-final before that or did you read the second one? I think I might be wrong. I think that Marat beat Tommy Haas in the semis. Okay. I think Marat beat uh, Sampras in the quarters. Oh, I think. Right, okay. I think. I think. I'm not sure. But... To win a slam or to go deep in a slam, you have to be a bit lucky. You have to be a bit lucky. You have to be, um, I mean, you have to be quite fresh after the first week. For example, you cannot uh, play, you know, a five-setter, a five-setter, and then, and then expect to maybe win. So first week, I, 
I think I won first round, four sets, second round, third, three sets, third round, maybe three or four. Um, so I had a five setter in the semis, but I played my semis on the Thursday. Okay. And this was something also quite strange that you finish your semifinal on the Thursday and then you play, then you play the final on Sunday. Yeah, yeah. You know? So um, it was tough for me to, how should I say, um, keep my focus. Yeah. Funny enough, it, it sounds strange, but, you know, having two days. It's a lot of time uh, to think. And, it's too and, too much time. And, and also get you out of the routine, you know, because it, exactly. it, it events you get into those routines, don't you? Yep. How you get up, you have your breakfast, you hit, you do this, you do that, and then all of a sudden that time. And yep. the question has so many things I want to ask you. It opens up so many kind of thoughts when I, you know, talking to you about it. But I, I had Pat Cash on a few weeks ago. And Pat opened up a conversation, which I have had previously, but I think it's a really important conversation, and, and that is around us linking our self-worth to the results that we have, you know, as, as tennis players, tennis people, tennis coaches as well, you know, like th that ability to separate who we are as people and the, the, the how we value ourselves as a person related to, to that. And I can't help thinking, because you've also said it a couple of times, and I can feel it, you know, tennis is something that's in your blood and you miss tennis and, you know, there's that uh, yeah. that feeling of, you know, tennis got, tennis got away from you too early. When you have such a high as winning the Australian Open like that, and not just winning the Aussie Open, but then you've then got, you're celebrating with four or 500 Swedes in a bar, the adrenaline rush you've got, the feeling that you've got, it's almost an impossible feeling to replicate unless you're winning another slam. But even then, maybe the replication isn't the same because it's, it's not the first time. Is that something that you've struggled with at all? Is there, is there been any negatives of actually winning a Grand Slam or has there been only positives after after it happened? It was a lot more focus on me. I had to do a lot more, um, you know, media and things like this. And, and also I came to tournaments, you know, being the number one seed, which didn't happen before Australian Open. So the pressure was, of course, there. Um, but how should I say this? Winning a slam is something that I dreamt of. Uh, did I think that I could win another slam? Uh, maybe. But I was not chasing. Uh, I, was, I was not chasing or expecting to win another one. So um, I had in 2005, I was in the semis in yeah. Wimbledon. And I had, uh, it was a rain delay, I think, after the first set against Roddick. Um, there, I felt that I could maybe reach a final, but then Roger was waiting there. So uh, I had a big chance against Roddick in the semis. I could have that that match could have easily gone either way. Um, but other than that, I was not that close to go deep in a slam. I was. I, I think I had maybe a quarterfinal or something, and and also the semifinal in in Wimby. Uh, there, I felt I had a chance to go deep or maybe to to reach a final. You know, yeah, I, I don't think it it changed anything 
negative. Yeah, I, I think it was more positive. I got proof that I could beat the best players yeah. if I played, you know, my best tennis. Yeah. It's a it's a personal one for me because I've actually to Gabby Dabrowski and Erin Routless, the the girls I'm I'm working with on the WTA right now. And Gabby's actually here with me in Soccer Grande this week. But we've got a team meeting tonight and and the team meeting, you know, one of the things I've been I've been kind of collecting is one one the strengths and weaknesses that they have, but also the opportunities and the threats that are coming up in 2024. You know, when we started working, there were 65 in the world and 28 in the world. You know, they had this, you know, and I know it's doubles and there's less pressure and less, you know, things that come on you in, in doubles, but all of a sudden they've gone and now they've they've won, they've won a Grand Slam. They've both moved into the top 10 in the world. They, you know, are disappointed to lose a close match in the semis of the WTA finals. Gabby's just won Billie Jean King Cup last week with Canada. You know, they've had this kind of mad, crazy three months of incredible results. And, you know, what are some of those things, if I can pick your brain a little bit, what are some yep. of those things that are, are potential threats and and uh, pitfalls in over the next over the next few weeks and months for, for, for them or anybody who's winning a Grand Slam and moving forward? The most important thing is that you have to have your feet on the ground, uh, meaning that you could have a lot of success, which they had this year, uh, but next year is a new year. Yeah. And you have to take, it's, a, it's a, like a little bit of a cliche, but you have to take match uh, after match. You, you cannot look too deep. And this is also a thing that, okay, now I'm number four or five or six in the world. I play a, a girl or a guy that is 25. Um, this one I should win easily. No, you should not. No. Because... Uh, we all know that it's easier to to chase than to be chased, and this is something that changed for me as well. You know, I, I was getting chased instead of chasing the other ones for a while, and this is something that you have to live with. You also have to understand that when the opponent steps on the court, they know that you have a higher level than them. They know that they have to take more risk that day. So that's why sometimes, you know, from my coaching career, I hear many times that this, this girl was playing so good against me. Or this guy came out firing left and right. And I said, yes, but what did you expect? Yeah. Did you expect that the guy or the girl would step on the court and just say, Jesus Christ, you're too good. Okay, I give up. Yeah, it's not like that in the in the world of sports. They come out and they try to take you down with everything they can. So that's why for me, I'm so impressed with guys like Novak, Rafa, uh, Roger, because every single match they play, they are the favorites. Yeah. Every single match, except when they play each other. And you know, even if they play like shit. They, yeah. they find a way to win. And this is a big difference between men and women for me. Women are looking for perfection. Guys, they don't do that. They Sometimes they say to themselves, today is not a good day. 
I don't feel the the ball. I don't feel the, my legs. I don't feel anything. So what do I feel? Can I use something to you know to try to win this match in an ugly way? I won't reach an eight or nine or ten in a, you know a ten scale. I maybe I might reach a six point five, but I will fight. I will fight, and I will find a way. This is the biggest difference between, as I see as a coach, between guys. And girls, if the girls, if the game is a bit off, first of all, the stress is coming a lot quicker than, you know, for the guys. And then when the stress comes, they have difficulties to see things clear uh, because they want to be a 9.9 or maybe 9.8 or maybe even a 10.2, which is you cannot, you yeah. cannot. Yeah. Uh, and as a professional player, a former professional player, I know that maybe you have one, two matches per year where you can close your eyes and hit. So this is something that is very important for everyone. First of all, they have to understand that this guy or this girl will come out with everything they have. And sometimes this player plays better that specific day than maybe a top 10 player. Yeah. You know, so but they don't have the consistency like a top ten player. So in the women's tennis, especially, it's a lot more about psychology um, than in the guys. The guys you can coach a little bit more with game plans and strategy, um, but with the girls, it's more emotional. I would say. So you have to see what you have that specific day. You know, what, what can I fight with today? Yeah. This is important. In terms of that, that moves me towards your coaching career. And you've you've worked with Maria Sakari, you've worked with Danny Goffan, you work with and you currently work with Serana Garcia. Mm. I know you've also worked with Philippe Kranjinovic. Um my first question moving into your coaching is the feeling you've talked about, which is you know, that adrenaline rush. Has has coaching been able to give you or replace that feeling as a player? Or... It's it's very close, I would say. It's yeah. for me, you know, coaching is as close as you can get to play. Um, and especially if you feel that you have said something to the player or you've been working on something specific with the player, and then you get re- rewarded, meaning you you win that match or you win that tournament. It's uh, it's a big rush. I cannot uh, say anything else. Um, I've been fortunate. I've been working with great players, uh, great people, also off the court. So um, you know, we we've had some good wins uh, here and there. And and for me, it's it's of course it's a huge rush. You know, yeah. and how. How influential in your mind, coming from a player's perspective and now a coach's perspective, how influential do you think coaches are in the world of tennis? I think they are very uh, important um, for the player. I also think that the, the relationship outside the court is quite important because I have my coaching philosophy is, is quite simple. I try to be very uh, intense during the um, the time that we spend on the court, but then after the match, after the practice, maybe I talk tennis for another 20-30 minutes, 
But after that, we don't talk about tennis. Because I really think that um, I see too many players, too many coaches talk about tennis 24-7. Meaning that when you get to the match where you are going to perform, you're dead. You're dead because you played this match over and over and over again. You know, when you went to bed, when you woke up, I mean, it's, it's draining. So my coaching philosophy is, is very simple. And, and I'm also, sometimes I'm a bit too honest. Um, but uh, you know how you say that if you were a true friend, you are honest. You are honest. Even if sometimes the truth is painful. Um, but after an emotional match, I try to give the player a bit of space. Because the adrenaline and the emotions are so high, so it's tough to communicate. We can have a short talk, but I have the big talk most of the time at night or the day after. Yeah. And and, and with that, it's a one that uh, we both know this or we've both seen this many times. Tennis is a bit weird that the player is the employee. <laughs> yes. So, so in terms of you, in terms of the power shift, and you know, I think that sometimes then leads to coaches not having the honest conversation that they should have, and yeah. and, and and there should be pain because we also know that pain initiates change. You know, so if something needs to be needs to change, and something which it does, if for us all to progress, you know, that's the conversation again. The conversation I've had with Gabby the last couple of days, it's not, let's, it, it, there was a moment of celebration and enjoy the achievements and reflection, but it's now, okay, how, why should we continue? And, you know, let's actually look at things and what does need to get better. And let's actually, you know, properly look at the at, at the details um, and not rest on our laurels in, in, in any shape or form. And what can I do better as a coach? And what can you do better yeah. as a player? And you know, all, of, all of those conversations that need to happen, sometimes those hard-hitting conversations can bring a bit of pain to have. But in, in this professional world that we live in, that's the very least that we owe our players, right? Yeah, you need to be honest as a coach. Um, I see this many, many times that they are um, coaches are sometimes uh, a bit too scared to lose their job, um, so they are not honest enough. Um, and that's why I think uh, you see a lot of former players are coaching now. Yeah, and. I think that they are quite honest because most of them have had a quite successful career before. Yeah. So if things go bad, they don't, I should say, lean on the job as much as uh, other people. Um, but, you know, you, you, you have to pick your fights as well. You have to, it's like having kids, you know, you have to pick your battles. And sometimes I have a tendency of, maybe be too honest like i said um and is but... this, can i pick you up on that because one of the things i as i was uh looking into things for this talk thomas is there was a comment in 2019 from philip philippe krajinovich that he claimed that you quit on him as he wasn't good enough yeah was that one of those examples of an honest conversation yes wrong yeah, it was a very honest conversation. I mean, I, I like Philippe a lot. I think he's 
one of the most talented um, players that I've ever seen on a tennis court. But um, it didn't work out as I wanted. And uh, of course, the feelings at that time were running high. Um, but I felt that I was not the right guy for him. Um, so, um, and that's why we, we stopped. It's quite simple. And, and, I, and I often think as well, it, we're in a world of tennis that isn't instant gratification. And we're living in a world now where everyone expects instant gratification. And, and a conversation like that, that you might have in 2018, might actually come to fruition for him in 2028 as an example you know sometimes yeah. takes it sometimes takes time but if we avoid those conversations then people just go through life with these yeah. blind, with these blind spots you know yeah. and, and 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 we've all got them and it's you know it's it's the it's the nicest thing in lots of ways that anyone could ever do to anyone is to give those give that honest feedback and that's yeah. it. i think that's a great it's a great piece of advice for any young coach out there because because you, you will end up, you might lose a few players, but they're not the right players for you anyway. And, you know, you'll end up no. getting the respect. The respect will come to you and you'll end up with stronger relationships moving forward from it. Yeah, yeah but, but it's like uh, a normal relationship. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And... Um... As I said, uh, I mean, you know, Philip is, is such a nice guy. He's a talented player. But um, it didn't work out. And, and this happens many, many times. Many times. And even, I don't want to mention any names, but you can win a big tournament. You can win a Masters 1000. You can win a Slam. You can win a whatever. And then the coach, the coaching and the player relationship just finishes yeah. for no reason. And uh, we've seen it before. And this this happens. It happens in all sports. So, um, um, you know, that's how it is. Do you think it's harder nowadays? They used to, it feels like they used to be back in. I'll put me in your day, Thomas. I know you've got a few years on me, but I'll put me in your, in your day as well. Back in our day, it felt like players were with coaches for longer periods whereas it, yeah. it looked, it looked yes. like do doubles partners i was uh in the doubles world which i mean which by the way would be some netflix show you know like we talk about talk about like wanting well, a good netflix show doubles is like love island on drugs I, i've said a couple of times <laughs> yeah. you know like you know everything like, all the conversations and the things that are happening and it was uh matthew pavic she was speaking to him a few weeks ago and he said no nah, you can you can't really have a doubles relationship for longer than two three years max now it just doesn't it doesn't work longer than that yeah. um, and I struggle with that a little bit in my head because I'm a team guy and I like to, you know, I think there's ways of, and there's a lot to be said for unconditionally supporting and finding ways and communicating. Um, but do you think it's kind of similar with coaches and players as well now? Mm, yes. Yes. We live in a, in a different world now uh, with many, many things that have changed since, you know, I was younger. But yeah, I agree that... You don't see that uh, many long coach-player relationships. Um, Lost for maybe a year or two, and then they change. Or it goes on longer, but then they call in someone else as well. So yeah. the teams are getting bigger, which I think is 
is not bad because I um, it's like running a company. If you have 80% there is working great, but 20% is not working well, yeah. what do you do in a company? You call in a consultant or you call in someone that has done it before. It's the same in tennis. Um, so um, I'm not surprised of what I'm seeing. I just think that some coach and player relationship have ended for me in a in a bad way in a strange way uh, because the results they were there so um but what what do i know i mean each team they have their things you know to work on yeah I, a, a couple of things one i i really have to ask you go back into this reality and fantasy world this would normally be a fantasy question i'd ask somebody you know what how would you coach against roger federer how would you coach against rafael nadal uh you know how would you coach against novak Djokovic? but you you've done it you know you've uh you know that's that's something that you know as you're coaching a player going into those matches and the aura that they undoubtedly have you know yeah. and, and the player is feeling it Give me an example of how you've tried to attack that as a coach to help get the player in the right mindset before playing one of these legends of the game. Well, it's not it's not easy um, because uh, of course they are most of the time they are better in most of the things, uh, yeah. meaning you know moving, serving, playing forward and backhand. But you know we we've had a few um, matches both when I was being coaching guys and girls against the best ones in the world, where you actually can find ways how to disturb them. But it's, it's very difficult. But the most, the most difficult thing is to get your player believe. Yeah. It happened many times. It's like when you take all the pressure off, then they go out and they, they like I said before, they go, they're firing left, right and center. And that's you know that's how you can disturb them as well. To disturb one of the you know the big ones in the semi-final or final, it's a lot tougher than to disturb them in the, in the first round match. Yeah, I've been coaching my players against the best ones in the world, and and to beat them in the semi-final or some, it's very difficult. But to disturb them in the first round, it's I'm not saying it's easy, but it's easier. You're currently coaching Serana. Castillo. Yes. My observation, and uh, I'm I'm quite a curious guy. So when I'm at these tournaments, I'm I'm often watching coaches and I'm watching to see what happens. I think the first time I saw you with Serrano was maybe maybe Miami. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. And the thing that has hit me is how um, stripped back it seems. Which is, you know, it, it, you, you often see this, look, Serana, and I know she hasn't made an abundance of late, late runs in the slams, and you guys have had a great year together this year. She, you know, beaten Rebecca in the fourth round at the US Open and making quarterfinals. But you, you see so many of these teams that are teams. They have, yeah. they have a big team around them. There's coach, agent, hitting part, the physio, you know, there's all sorts going on. Whereas it's it's been really cool for me to see that it's just kind of you and Serana rocking up and you're 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 hitting with her, uh, you know, you're seem to just be almost doing every everything. Um, you know, it seems like a nice relaxed relationship you guys have got walking around. I'm sure there's lots more conversations happen than I see. Um 
I guess my my question on that. Firstly, well done on a great twenty twenty. Thank you. You know, it's uh, it's very clear to to see the success and the connection that you guys have had. So a big big well done on that. But is that been a conscious decision to to strip that back? Almost like it would be turning up to a futures event. You know, that's kind of yeah. the, the feeling that you seem to have had, which goes a little bit against what most teams or players are doing on the WTA tour. Yeah, so Sorana is a bit older as well. You know, she's uh, 33 years old. She's been on the tour since since she was 15 or 16. Yeah. So she's had a long career. So she is, I would say, more experienced than most of the girls. But at the same time, I mean, I, I also try to simplify things. Of course, if you're one of the best girls in the world, you have a big team around you. You have a fitness coach and you have hitting partners and everything. But for me, sometimes more people uh, more issues more problems more opinions we are trying and i i've done pretty much the same as i did when i played it was my coach and my wife um sometimes we we added either a physio or, or a fitness guy it was the same guy all the time i wanted to try to keep things simple okay. um and and this is also i think it also takes a lot of the pressure off because yeah. I think the bigger team you have, the more you feel like, you know, I have to perform. Yeah. But as I said, if she would be, uh, you know, 10 years younger, then maybe it would be different, but she knows a lot about tennis. She knows how to train. She knows how to prepare. She has played these girls many, many times. She knows what it's like. And for me, you know, sometimes you need to keep things very simple. And this is what I try to do with her. Well, it's, it certainly seems to have, have worked well. And you're continuing into 2024. You'll be, yes. you'll be out in Australia. Yep. Well, I, yep. I, I, I look forward to, to seeing you <laughs> out there. If I can get to you, will you go back to the home, the 22-year uh, anniversary? I'm too old, my friend. I'm too old. <laughs> 22 year anniversary. What's the yes. future? What's the future of Thomas Johansson? The future of uh, Thomas Johansson is that I love coaching. I love coaching girls. I love coaching guys. I love coaching kids. Uh, I really want to because tennis is my in my DNA. I really want to um, you know continue working uh, with that. Um, then in December last year, I joined a company called All Time. Uh, all time is based here in uh, Monaco and it's the family office of the Formula One driver Charles Leclerc. So I'm more like uh, an advisor um, to this company. Uh, the company is growing very quick because we are helping athletes living in Monaco with their day-to-day -day business. So I would say it's not a management company. It's more a concierge company helping players to move into Monaco to come into the social uh, life here, uh, also help them with different things. Uh, it could be, you know, finding a new apartment, parking spot, uh, insurance, new bank, yeah, everything like this. That management groups uh, or management companies should actually maybe not do because they should more focus on the big things, meaning, you know, getting clothing deals, racket deals, uh, you know, in, in the Formula One, get, get um, a team for them to drive for. So we are trying to make life a lot easier for the athletes living in Monaco. Well, you, you've been a star, Thomas. 
I've wanted you on for a while because since Magnus, I when I had Magnus on, Magnus had mentioned your name. So I'm pleased we've been able to bring it together. So a big thanks for your time. Um, all the best to 2024 with Serrano as well. And I look forward to catching up. But before I let you go, are you ready for the quick fire round? Sure. Go. Shoot. Olympics or Grand Slam? Grand Slam. Serve or return? Serve. The greatest Swedish tennis player of all time? For me, my idol was Mats Wilander, but um, I, th- I would say Bjorn Borg. I would say Bjorn Borg. Who's the tougher opponent, Roger Federer or Pete Sampras? Roger Federer. Roger or Rafa? Oh, <laughs> I love both. Um, I would say, I would say Rafa. Favorite Grand Slam and why? Australian Open because I won it. <laughs> <laughs> Not many can say that. <laughs> yeah. You've got to answer that. Not many can say it. Medical timeout or not? Uh, not. What's one rule change you would have in tennis? Oh, good one. Shorter formats. Who is going to win the ATP Tour Finals that's currently going on in Turin? Who's your pick? Yannick Sinner. Yannick Sinner. He took out Novak Djokovic last night in an incredible yes. match. Can yes. he do it again on Sunday in the final? I think he can. It would be some week if you can. Last question. Who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? You are then responsible for bringing them on. Okay. Okay. Let me have a thought and then I will let you know. You definitely... You mentioned one earlier who who you said you were still good friends. You played him in the 2002 Australian final. He lost to me... Dan Kiernan in the semi-finals of under-14 Le Petit Arts doubles event. So Marat Safin would be the one I'd love you to be able to get on if, you, if you're if able. I will do my very best. I I'll promise, Dan. Thomas, okay. your star, you yep. go. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And we hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. And I say we because... I have Vicky next to me again. It's been a, a busy few weeks. Lots of lots of tennis events around the world and also closer to home. But a big welcome back, Vicky. How are you doing? Well, really, I insisted on coming back to make sure your microphone was in the right position. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. That's maybe overall beforehand, but we remember what we said, control the controllables. No, bla- no blaming around here. And yeah, to jump into that, we, we talk about Andalusia, where we've lived for 14 years. How lucky are we? We've had the Billie Jean King Cup finals. We've had the Davis Cup finals. And actually, we didn't make it this year because it was on my radar a bit late. But they also had the the junior Billie Jean King and Davis Cup finals up in Cordoba as well. So a real hotbed of tennis right now. And we've just heard that it's going to be back here next year as well. So anyone looking to come on a trip you know get planning i know i was saying to the kids like this is not normal to have both events in spain and in our region where we can just leave after school and go and watch some of the matches like it's not normal we did some academy trips to go watch some of the ties and i'd written to all the local schools and said this is a once in a lifetime opportunity for our players to see you know all these amazing tennis players up close and personal and then they've announced next year so i might have to amend that sentence it's also not normal normal on a school night to come home at 3 30 (laughs) a.m 
<laughs> which is also what was happening watching watching those incredible matches during exam weeks as well yeah We'll see how those results come back. <laughs> but no, very lucky and a big, big well done to, to Canada, who, of course, is very close to our heart as Gabby Dabrowski won all of her matches and played that leadership role that she always does in that in team event to help Canada to to their, their triumph in Sevilla. And then to Yannick Sinner's Italian <laughs> team. I mean, what an incredible few weeks Yannick Sinner's had. Yeah, no mean feat beating Novak Djokovic twice on the same... Three times, if you include the doubles. Well, I was including the doubles. I was going to say the same day. Was it the same day? Yeah, of course. Yeah, twice I mean... on the same day in the semifinals and then obviously at the uh, um, ATP finals as well. So, uh, yeah, he was, just, he was just a machine. And actually, when we watched Djokovic play Cam Norrie, I was thinking, oh, can he do it again in this setting? But he got riled, didn't he, Djokovic? He really got riled with the British fans um, when we were watching. I was like, oh, I, I don't know how many Davis Cups he's actually played over the years, but it was really interesting seeing him in that environment. I, th I think rightly so. Um, I, I am growing more and more respect for Novak Djokovic, and I can see your face there because I know you're not a Djokovic fan. But I thought there was a low percentage of the GB fans were completely out of order. I think there's a time and place. I, I, I think when you're being interviewed after a match, yeah, that was shocking. I think you've got to, you've got to keep the respect. You know, not just because he's the greatest male player of all time, but just, just anyway. You know, I think there has to be that integrity in the sport. Um, so if you didn't, if you didn't see what happened um, at the, I mean, there, there was a, there was a lot of stuff going on through the match that I didn't think was actually bad at all. It was very Davis Cup tie esque. He was giving it back to the crowds. It was all just quite a nice, jovial, like competitive team event, Davis Cup atmosphere. But at the end of the match, um, when Djokovic um, was being interviewed for, um, I think on the TV, but as well as for, for all the crowd, um, a section of the British fans started beating the drums and making loads of noise so we couldn't hear him. And there were there were a lot of British fans who were telling them to be quiet, you know, be respectful, we can't hear anything. But Djokovic did turn around and there was a big, big argument back and forth between yeah. him and a couple of the fans. That's nice to see some character, but I it think was, if, if you, I was like, what is going on? It was like a football match. If you want to win the tennis match against Novak Djokovic, you don't jeer against him. You know, if we've learned anything about Novak Djokovic over the last few years, his his motivation is proving people wrong. You know, he, he gets into that spite mode almost of I'll show you. You know, I don't think there's ever been a greater player that goes against the fans. You know, he's he's completely comfortable in that environment. And on that subject I saw an article today actually or yesterday on is Yannick Sinner the man to send Novak Djokovic into retirement? You know, and it's that sort of article as well, that the more that those things are said and written about Novak Djokovic, the longer he is going to be around because he just loves that challenge. And it's going to be interesting to see if Sinner is going to join that group, the Novak Djokovic, the Carlos Alcaraz, who I think are a little bit apart, and then obviously Medvedev, but I think Sinner could be the one that Djokovic is most fearful of. Let's see how he combats that in 2024 as well. And it was also really lovely seeing so many British people. I was going to say our home city. It's not our home city, but our closest city to us. Um, and have to give a shout out to Kay Gilbert, who runs the Tennis Parents Community on Facebook, who um, we've been following for some time, but we haven't actually met 
So it was lovely to catch up with her and, and lots of, of coaches and yeah and people, uh, players that I used to play with when I was a kid. It was awesome. And everyone talking about control the controllables, you know, and you say British, but also Finnish. You know, we had our Harry Heliavara representing Finland and all the amazing Finnish fans that made their way over. It was a real spectacle. I'm still not a big fan of that format of the Davis Cup. But for us to be spoilt to have it on our home turf, it was great. So anyone that was listening that we did see, or anyone that we didn't see, reach out to us. Because next year, Malaga, Sevilla, you know, we'd love to see you. And we'd also love to see you in Sota Grande as well. For a few days before, we've had fantastic weather at this time of the year. And it's almost like you'd planned it having a Davis Cup winner on the show the week we're actually watching the Davis Cup finals. Yeah, and, and, and I think at this point, we've got to speak about Thomas. And, you know, he was a great, great guest. I think certainly, you know, hearing his thoughts on on how to develop tennis players. And, you know, Sweden has been this powerhouse for so many years. But actually, if you look back now, it's really Robin Sordling was the last true potential Grand Slam winner to come out of Sweden. You know, there's been a little bit of a quiet on the quiet front in both the men's and the women's. Yeah, when he said there's no top 100 player, I was like, oh my gosh. It's been a drought for a while. And I thought it was very interesting because obviously as owners of a tennis academy, we have a lot of conversations and I guess we're up with the latest trends of how people see tennis development happening. And there certainly is an obsession with this one-on-one scenario, this one-on-one travel, which... I know there's a time and place for one-on-one, but I've always been of the opinion, especially in your younger formative years, you don't want to spend all your time with some adult, you know, who you can't quite relate to and who, you know, you want to be a kid and you want to be spending time in your peer group. And, And I think it was really interesting. He kind of talked about hunting in small packs, you know, you're two or three, off you go with a coach, getting that contact time, Uh, but also pushing each other and learning from each other and realising if one can do it, then the other one can do it. And, you know, having that real competitive spirit, but more than that, creating fun memories that you've got for life. And I thought that was really interesting, something so simple. And that certainly would fit into the philosophy that I would have on game player development as well. What I think came through loud and clear was how much he actually enjoyed his tennis, the way he was talking about it, the memories, even when he was saying, you know, my wife and I had an amazing life together. We traveled to all these different places doing the thing that I loved. It's not always the case. We don't always have former players on talking about how much they, they just really really enjoyed tennis and I do think yeah there's something in that like he said he was training as a team living with traveling in that team it's yeah it's almost like college tennis isn't it you're you're doing all the difficult things and the fun things together as a group with with friends well winning doesn't always equal success as our amazing <laughs> Valerie Condos field has, has, has told us and you know and and that's by the way the our first podcast short is our last episode and that's a nice little clip on that but it's it, it's exactly right because you know Thomas Johansson I think I believe is forty eight years old now and he and he's still still travelling the world with passion of tennis in his bloodstream you know uh, as we were talking he actually texted me and said really sorry Dan got to go in five minutes uh, I'm going to go and hit some balls with my son you know so it's it's in his family it's in it's in everything that he does and if you have a bad experience when you're young. 
you might win a few tournaments, but that doesn't always equal success because we ha we have the rest of our lives to live. And if you live the rest of your life not even wanting to look at a tennis ball, then in my opinion, that's, that's a failure. And and I think Thomas put that really well to showing, showcasing his story. And keeping on the team theme, I loved his bar story, celebrating the Australian Open win. And that's that same along that same vein isn't it you know he wanted to share it with the people that he he said like helped him along in those in that fortnight in in melbourne um i always listen to um the episodes first like when i'm driving or cooking and i was i was in the kitchen cooking the kids dinner and uh, i was screaming at the at the phone mac how much was the bar bill? <laughs> I'm gonna have to go on Google and see if, see if it's on there. He kept saying, "Oh, it was a lot." Swedes like Swedes like to drink, but I was like, "How much must he have spent?" Well, if he meant if he mentioned the bar, then he might have actually got it for free if he keeps the advertising of which bar it was. <laughs> yeah. But actually, do you know what jumps into my mind on that is because I said I never that often never happens, and and I don't think it does because who wins all the Grand Slams? Novak Djokovic, okay. Rafael Nadal, Igor Sviantek, you know, Sabalenka, they're all such superstars that you couldn't do it. <laughs> they're too big. They're, they're, they're too okay. big of a superstar, you know, and I think that was the beauty of Thomas's run in 2002. He, he wasn't a superstar. You know, he was, you know, a somewhat normal guy, granted 16 in the world and a hell of a tennis player. But I think it's really nice that he was able to have that enjoyment with the with the public, with the people, with, you know, his people. Uh, but unfortunately, I think almost the singles players, they're too big of a superstar for to, to get that, actually, in, in the sport of tennis. And then the doubles players, nobody knows them. So then, so then they're not in the bar either. So I think that's quite a unique story because of the position that he was in, that he went on to to win the event. It did sound like one hell of a night, and and as we've talked about before, players often don't get the opportunity to go out and celebrate. You know, they're planning for the next event, they're on the next flight out to a tournament. So yeah, I mean that that is how you do it. I would say. <laughs> and as much as it is lovely speaking to you, Vicky, about the last few weeks. And having some reflections on Thomas's great wise words. We are going to leave you this time, but we, we as ever have lots of exciting episodes coming your way. If you haven't listened yet, we had our first podcast short. You know, that's us reflecting on the last three and a half years and going through and picking out some of our best moments on Controller Controllables to share with you. We had Valerie Condos Field in our last episode. We've got Tom Gullickson coming up in the next few days. I mean, that one, I can't tell that story without a tear coming in my eye, without goosebumps all over my body. So I don't want you to miss out on that. We then have Russell Fuller from Five Live coming on the show. And that's going to be a fantastic conversation. And then Sir Andy Murray. If you missed it, episode 200, you can go back and listen. But we are going to pick out some of our best bits as well to share with you in a podcast short. So lots more for you to look forward to. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables.